Labour has never done well in a UK election without doing really well in Scotland. We need deposit ATMs and we need withdrawal ATMs and we need a law that means that businesses have to accept cash. UK workers have had the most bargaining power essentially since the 1970s because the jobs market is so tight. Can Britain actually afford to maintain a global military presence? You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Caroline Hepburn. Welcome to today's programme. Now we're going to start the show with the situation in the Middle East. Israel's military says that it's killed dozens of Hamas fighters in what Israel's Prime Minister described as the second stage of the war. Now Bloomberg understands that Israel's military campaign inside Gaza is expected to last anywhere from six weeks to six months. Israeli ground forces have also launched raids in Jenin, a city in the West Bank. The local health ministry there says that four Palestinians were killed, with reports indicating that fighting is ongoing. Yeah, the military escalation comes as Benjamin Netanyahu faces growing pressure from his own party uh, for pointing the finger at intelligence chiefs for the country's security lapse before the 7th of October Hamas uh, attack. Netanyahu addressed Israel on Saturday evening. He was dressed in black. He said that he is determined to avenge the 7th of October attack that killed 1,400 people. Now, earlier this morning on Bloomberg Radio, I spoke to one of the Prime Minister's advisers, Mark Regev, and I asked him for his response to the calls now from the United Nations and from a number of other countries actually for a ceasefire. Well, if they can tell me another way to dismantle Hamas's military machine, I'm very glad to hear it. But at the moment, there is no other way. And those who call for a ceasefire... Uh, in the current situation, it might sound good, and I understand why people might you know, think, oh, that's a wonderful idea, let's stop shooting. But that basically just returns us to October 7th at 6 in the morning, where Israel has this terrorist enclave on our southern border, uh, uh, run by Hamas, uh, uh, which is like ISIS on steroids. We, we saw the violence they were capable of. We saw the brutality. We saw the rapes and the murders and burning people alive and, and the massacres. Uh, uh, we refuse, people have to understand, Israel refuses to return to that situation. We don't want, we refuse to live with this terrorist enclave on our border. So if anyone can tell us how we can dismantle Hamas's military machine uh, in another way, I'm happy to hear. Some of these voices, it's like Hamas killed and brutalized and massacred Israelis. And when Israel starts to move against Hamas ceasefire, no, Hamas has no immunity. They acted like ISIS, they should be treated like ISIS. So that was Mark Regev then comparing Hamas to ISIS. Regev also told me that um, he talked about Hamas leadership being stationed under a hospital, under the Shiva hospital in Gaza City, saying that nobody should be surprised about this, that they are deliberately using humanitarian places like schools and hospitals for their, quote, war machine. So that was what he was saying about Hamas this morning. Yeah, Gaza's health ministry, which is controlled by Hamas, says that more than 8,000 people have been killed since the start of this war three weeks ago. The International Criminal Court's chief prosecutor says that stopping the flow of aid into Gaza could constitute a war crime. He had a message for both sides after visiting the Rafah border crossing between Egypt and Gaza. I call for the immediate release of all hostages taken, and I want to underline clearly to Israel that there must be discernible efforts to make sure civilians receive basic food, anaesthetics, morphine. So that was Kareem Khan, who's the ICC's chief prosecutor. 
Meanwhile, here in the UK, the government is holding a COBRA meeting today with ministers, with police chiefs, with security officials to assess the domestic terrorism threat. Uh, Also concerns around disinformation, some pointing to Iran, um, trying to sort of destabilise perhaps the UK. And then you've got a number of uh, politicians who are, again, going to the Middle East. So the Foreign Secretary James Cleverly uh, in the UAE today, he'll meet his counterpart there for talks about you know stopping a spillover of the conflict and then Labour's shadow Foreign Minister David Lammy also on a separate Middle East trip three days he'll be in Jordan Qatar and Egypt and back here in the UK the Met Police say that 100,000 people attended a pro-Palestinian protest in London this weekend calling for a ceasefire the protest saw five people arrested and charged. There were also demonstrations in Manchester, Bristol, Glasgow and in other cities. As for British nationals in Gaza, the US says that Hamas may be preventing foreigners from leaving the territory. Here's Government Minister Robert Halfen. If people are being kept in a place against their will and not allowed to travel out, then that is a form of hostage taking. But uh, as I say, it shows the nature of Hamas. It shows what Israel has to deal with and explains why the government has said that it supports Israel's right to defend itself. Well, joining us to wrap all of this together is Bloomberg's uh, James Walcott. James, uh, the UK position, uh, what's the UK's position now that the ground invasion is finally actually happening? I mean, it's broadly unchanged. You can sum it up with three easy concepts. It is backing Israel in its right to defend itself. I mean, I was listening with interest to Mark Regev's interview earlier with Caroline, where he talked about, he described Hamas as a terrorist enclave. And there's this sort of acceptance of understanding that Israel cannot have an attack of this scale go unpunished and without any kind of response. But then you also have aid and hostages, the concerns for that. You have Robert Halfen this morning saying that there are 200 British citizens trapped in Gaza who can't get out for whatever reason. Some speculate Hamas is keeping them there. Others say it's just very difficult to get through the crossing. Halfen says it would be akin to describing them as being held hostage, which then you sort of see that then there are diplomatic efforts to let those people go. Hamas have set out some conditions for that, which include reducing Israeli bombardment, which seems at this point quite unlikely. And the third big concern is diplomatically to prevent Escalation. And you can see James Cleverly is on a trip to Jordan today as part mm-hmm. of a diplomatic approach. You also have his counterpart, Shadow Foreign Secretary David Lamy, is in the UAE. And this is all about trying to build bridges with Arab nations in the Middle East to prevent any kind of war spiraling out of control. The Middle East produces a third of the world's, world's oil reserves. And so we saw last year the kind of crisis that can be caused by a war in the international scene. I mean, look at Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So a lot of UK politicians are thinking about their hostages trying to show support for Israel, but also very concerned about how this could go much, much worse before it gets any better. Yeah. Is there a shift in tone, though, in terms of Palestinian civilians, given the number of deaths, albeit as reported by Hamas, but those numbers are increasing and very stark. This is where we move from the conflict to language, Caroline. The big word to watch for is ceasefire, because for many who protest, or many of the MPs, I mean, you've even seen Sadiq Khan and uh, Labour mayors Andy Burnham uh, for Manchester talk about support for a ceasefire. It's a very controversial term, because as Regev pointed out earlier, like it can be seen as a way of saying, well, Israel should stop in some way, whereas the word that Labour's leader, Keir Starmer, the Prime 
Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the US have gone with this humanitarian pause. But you have the UN this morning saying that there has been a civil disintegration of order over in the Gaza Strip. They talk about people breaking into warehouses, supplies running low. And so there are increasing fears and increasing protests as people see the scale of the humanitarian devastation. But I mean, as yet, uh, the words to watch out for have not fully changed. There is just sort of more increasing distress around kind of the casualties that are mounting. Ministers are holding an emergency meeting of the COBRA committee today, aren't they? There are worries about the possibility of a domestic terrorist incident, aren't there? That the threat of terrorism perhaps has increased. Well, I mean, you and you mentioned that um, the police uh, saw 100,000 people, they estimate, on the streets of London over the weekend. That's a lot of people to police. And there are fears of Iranian... Uh, operatives uh, which are helping to spread this kind of dissent. I mean, the Foreign Secretary James Cleverly over the weekend gave a warning to pro-Palestinian supporters saying, just be careful what you read effectively. There's a lot of disinformation out there. So many things are coming through social media. There are fears around that. There are also fears around, we've seen across Europe some retaliatory attacks. I mean, we had Ellen Milligan on the podcast last week talking about the exponential rise in both anti-Semitic and Islamophobic hate crimes on the streets of the UK. Uh, The reporting is that there may be some sort of look at the terror threats. It's currently at substantial that it could be raised to severe or critical, which gives the police further powers. But the other thing to draw note to here, Caroline Newman, is there is a big argument going on about how the Met are doing their job policing Mm. these kinds of protests. Now, um, Mark Rowley, who's the head of the Met, he's been talking about how there isn't the right laws to tackle this. he Which got a lot of pushback from government, right? I mean, the Met talking about wanting more clarity on terrorism, the government saying that there are enough powers, they're then also Rowley speaking on Sunday and saying, you know, uh, that the, the Met were being ruthless in his words. Yeah, I mean, so from the government's perspective, they're saying, well, look, we have hate crime laws, we have laws against terror. The laws against terror are very tough in the UK. You Mm. can make a lot of arrests and keep people for quite long periods of time to investigate while terror laws go on. And then, But Mark Rowley pushes back and says, yes, those are both true, but there is a no law for extremism. Mm. And so, until it becomes a hate crime, if you're just saying things before you're actually doing anything, what are the powers to arrest? And he adds, unless we are arresting and then charging, just making arrests and being overly brutal without legislation to back it up risks inflaming the tensions he has a, i don't envy his job caroline because he has a home secretary saying you need to be doing more he is saying there's not legislation parliament is currently prorogued before the king's speech on november the 7th and so the legislation isn't going to change and so without clear direct guidance from the government or more legislation he would argue his hands are tied, but that won't stop government members, including his boss, the Home Secretary, being publicly critical of his job. Now, how tricky is this for Keir Starmer? You mentioned the language around uh, a ceasefire, but it's wider than that, isn't it? The the, the, the row in the Labour Party is, is bigger than that, isn't it? Mm, I mean... In some ways, Keir Starmer might be quite glad Parliament's being prorogued because Monday night is traditionally the night the Labour Parliamentary Labour Party meets, and that could be quite a difficult conversation for him. We are seeing... Keir Starmer, we were at the conference, Caroline. Yes. Incredibly unified front bench. Incredibly sort of... It was defined by, in opposition to the Conservative Party by how, quite, how clear the party was. 
that is really starting to fracture in a lot of ways. We are seeing front benchers like uh, Shaban Mamou, the Shadow Justice Secretary, sent a note out to her constituents talking about collective punishment in Gaza. And what is fast becoming quite clear in this conflict is that there are quite sort of explosive words. Collective punishment is one of those ones that is seen as a pro-Palestinian view. Jess Phillips, a very well-known Labour MP, Parliament may be shut, but she can still tweet. And she's been reposting things that are seen as quite pro-Palestine in terms of supporting, saying, you know, just telling people to move when there's nowhere safe uh, is no set policy mm. position. I think about a, I think about a dozen members of Labour's front bench have, or Labour's top team certainly have tweeted the word ceasefire, which is not sort of not officially uh, the, the Labour line. Yeah. And also, I think there's a big, I mean, obviously, Starmer, as you say, when we were at conference, the, the, um, the decisive step for Starmer is to differentiate his administration from that of Jeremy Corbyn, you know, which was, you know, found to be anti-Semitic, you know, um, uh, by investigations um, in terms of the Human Rights Commission and so on. So that there was that. But but if there is a fracturing of the front bench, how likely is it that there will be a change for Keir Starmer? Because the other point, really, is that Starmer, this is a major test for Keir Starmer in the face of a general election. This is a global political crisis. And so how he responds is very much, you know, how voters might expect him to react as a prime minister. So that is a huge litmus test. I mean, this is a very difficult situation for him to deal with because, I mean, look, to put a very cynical electoral hat on and this is something that the uh, shadow minister Peter Kyle fought back against over the weekend when it was put to him what's the best vote winning strategy because this isn't about votes this is about morality but if you look at this, like you say, Keir Starmer has to show he's different to Jeremy Corbyn's administration. He's seen that as a key vote winning issue and he will try and defend Israel's right to defend itself whenever he can. And that's what got him in so much trouble with this LBC interview that we played last week yes. when Ezra Milligan was on the podcast. But he also now has an increasing amount of his pro-Palestine Muslim MPs and non-Muslim MPs who are concerned about this saying this situation is untenable. You have to take a step and step in. They are putting to him behind the scenes, we've heard, that up to 30 seats could be lost because Starmer is not showing a positive, unified vision for what Labour could be. But there is no clear policy path to find a way through for them. I mean, like there is no stance that he could be taking to assuage these things. And allies of Starmer push back and say, you are trying to overstate the case here for saying up to 30 MPs seats will be lost. So the question is here is, is there going to be any budging of Labour's front bench? No one has yet been sacked. And if you look at previous instances of anti-Semitism in the party, when Diane Abbott said certain things earlier, when Jeremy Corbyn made statements, there were instant firings. That has not happened. That already shows that there is some kind of softness in the stand position, in that there is sort of there is acknowledgement that it's a very difficult issue, yes. lots of thoughts on all sides. The question will be is... A key word to watch out for is if ceasefire is used by any Labour front benches. That will be the trigger point. And we discussed some of the electoral maths around this, didn't we, with Patrick English from YouGov and last week's uh, podcast. Well worth listening back to. You mentioned earlier about uh, uh, UK nationals in Gaza. This is another problem for the Foreign Office, isn't it? It is, because... Without the UK's political weight in the situation is limited. Without sort of big backing from the US, uh, there's a great piece on Bloomberg's tell today about the role that Qatar plays in this. We are effectively operating third hand. We're relying on other countries to be intermediaries for us. Uh, the best we can do is try and operate with Egypt, who own the border crossing that many of these people will be getting out of the Rafa border crossing to try and facilitate that transfer. But you can see the level of uh, interest in this and sort of mm. anguish from uh, the Scottish First Minister Hamza Youssef, who. Has 
has family there who says he's only been able to re-establish contact with his family this weekend as telecommunications have been restored. So, I mean, this uh, conflict has roots all the way through UK society with a Jewish population, a Muslim population, people in the top levels of power who have relatives there. And that is why we feel it so intensely. And it also explains why our politicians have such a difficult job trying to calibrate a response that is both accommodating of humanitarian need, supports Israel, whilst also not inflaming tensions at home. And now, as we hear from a COVID meeting, will be coming later today, protects the UK from any kind of terror response that may be coming as well. James Walcott, thank you so much for being with us. Now, most public services are performing worse now than they were back in 2010. That's the finding of a public services stock take by the Institute for Government and Chartered Institute of Public Finance and Accountancy. Well, joining us now on the show is Stuart Hodinot, who's a senior researcher at the Institute for Government. Stuart, just talk about, tell us about which public services you analysed in this. The performance tracker covers uh, nine public services. They are general practice, hospitals, adult social care, children's social care, neighbourhood services, which are provided by local authorities, schools, uh, police, criminal courts and prisons. And what was your what were your finding in those areas? We found, as you mentioned, that most public services are performing worse now than on the, the pandemic and are also performing worse than in 2010. We also found that current spending plans to the end of March 2025 and then into the next spending review, which ends in March 2028, are not sufficient to return most services to pre-pandemic performance. Look, the report um, which we've read is it's horrifying, frankly. I mean, the first sentence summarises it. Public services that have for years been creaking are now crumbling. You you say that there's a risk that the government is going to get into a doom loop. What do you mean by that? What we mean is that public services perform, uh, have been struggling with performance for a number of years now. And the government has ended up focused so much on the short term crisis in each of these services that it's failed to make the necessary long term decisions that would be required to return services to a good level of performance. These are in areas, for example, such as capital spending, where government has consistently underfunded public services for decades. But that underfunding has also been worse in the 2010s than it was in the years before that. If you look at hospitals and the NHS as an example, the government averaged approximately 85% of the OECD average on capital investment between 1970 and 2010. And that dropped substantially to about 65% in the 2010s. All of that means public services are less resilient. And that means when shocks like COVID come along, public services are exposed to much greater levels of risk and fragility than they would be than, than they would be otherwise. That then has a sort of a feedback loop where staff are then put under more pressure, staff leave the service, putting more pressure on those that remain. So there's this, this, this sort of spiral of performance that is very difficult to break out of and in which public, many public services now find themselves. Is it also, though, an issue of, of focus and information? Surely the government would push back and say, actually, this is a doom loop of focusing on the negative when it comes to the UK's performance. As we, you know, the government often says uh, people do in terms of the economy in the UK, that the, the UK is still, you know, punching above its weight, still a, a G7 power to be reckoned with, and that this is focusing so much on the negative and, and, and not sort of analysing what benefits there are. 
We would say to that that this analysis is done across internally in the UK mostly, so we're not really comparing to other countries that much, but it's done within the UK and it's looking across a number of decades. I think what we can say for sure is that performance has worsened by the standards that the government sets for public services since 2010 in a way that really shouldn't be acceptable to any party in power. And those that deterioration performance is largely the result of either underfunding or or funding that has not increased with, in line with demand and also due to a prioritization of certain types of spending so more on day-to-day spending uh, at the expense of longer term funding decisions like on capital like on management um, that would arguably have helped to improve service performance now yeah, I want to ask you about capital spending. How important is the, the relative cut in investment as compared to day-to-day spending? Obviously, the government cuts investment, particularly uh, in the wake of the 2010 election uh, when, when the country was short of cash. But they did, they did protect uh, uh, NHS day-to-day spending, didn't they? That's certainly what the government would, would argue. So NHS day-to-day spending increased by roughly 1.5% in real terms per year between 2010 and 2019. So yes, it was protected compared to other public services, which actually saw cuts in their spending, for example, adult social care or the police. But also those increases were far beneath the average increases per year since the foundation of the NHS. So between 1979 and 1980 and 2009-10, spending increased by about 4% in real terms on the NHS. And um, and in the, the, the new Labour year, spending increased by about 6% per year in real terms. So yes, spending did increase, and that happened during periods when other spending was cut. But it was also arguably not enough to keep pace with demand, to uh, meet the requirements of new uh, sort of drugs, new innovation, new technology in the NHS that would have now be helping it perform better. So yes, I think there is an element of um, you know that th- there are some services to be protected more than others, but that hasn't necessarily protected them from just the large increases in demand. I would also say that it's very important to see public services as an interconnected system. So yes, the NHS and particularly hospitals have had protected levels of spending throughout that period, but by cutting spending on adult social care, by cutting investment in public health by um, reducing resources for community health and mental health, that pushes demand more towards those acute settings and makes it so that even those spending increases are not meeting the level of demand. I'd also say that spending in those areas per sort of person or per episode of demand is much more expensive than it is if, if people are seen in the areas where there is more appropriate. So it's more expensive, for example, for somebody to be seen in, in A&E than it is for them to be seen by their GP or for them to be seen or to get some level of ongoing care from their local authority. So there's also sort of been bad prioritisation of spending within the system as a whole. Stuart, the Institute for Fiscal Studies recently said that the UK is facing permanently higher taxes already. Is the only answer then to fill in the gaps of recent years to have higher taxes still in the UK? The government has a number of options available to it for public services going forward. Either they can commit to higher performance of public services as they currently stand, which we argue would likely require some more spending, at least in the short term. 
that would in turn require either higher borrowing or higher taxation, something that neither party really seems that keen to commit to for understandable reasons. Another option would be that government could potentially cut the types and levels of public services that is currently offered to uh, the public in order to improve performance of remaining services. We don't recommend that. We don't think that's a viable option, but it's something that is would be available to them. It's also worth saying that we that we are not arguing that public services can't be more productive and more efficient. There are def definitely productivity uh, enhancements to be found across most public services. But those enhancements require, in most cases, at least some upfront investment. So, for example, there would be productivity enhancements in the NHS from better IT systems and IT hardware in hospitals, GP practices all across the NHS. But that doesn't happen without a large increase in funding in the short term. There'll probably be payback to that over the longer term, but it requires a government to be upfront and to make that investment now. We feel, we argue in the report that neither party is currently being honest about the trade-offs implied by current spending plans with the electorate and that they should grapple with that question that the IFS and you have just raised of what we would have to do to see public service performance improve. Stuart, Labour have so far taken a pretty cautious uh, approach towards public spending. Do you think their short-term plans offer any hope for improvement? As as I said before, both parties committed to current spending plans, which are for 1% real terms increases in uh, in day-to-day -day spending before 2028. And we argue that if those plans are met, then given levels of demand in many services, you would likely see further deterioration. So it doesn't really matter which party is committing to those plans. We think that as they stand, they would lead to what I would describe as politically unacceptable levels of performance. Okay, Stuart Hodinot, uh, thank you so much for being with us, Senior Researcher at the Institute for Government. Thank you. That's it from us for today. So we were talking about the Israel-Hamas war. We will be covering that war and its implications throughout the week. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. You can give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Max Green. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Caroline Hepke. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.